Thanks, Glenda. And uh, thank you for putting up with us. Uh, we, uh, we're just trying to sort some things out. We have a few teething things, but um, especially with the sound. <laughs> we're trying to get the sound in the back area, um, but that means fiddling around with things uh, greatly. But anyway, we've only been here. This is our second time. <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs> but anyway, give us some time, please. Um, let, let us, uh, friends, let's pray. Our Father, you intervened uh, to save us. Uh, please help us today to better understand the implications now and please help us to be very, very, very thankful and not to spurn what you have now done. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, uh, we're back in Zechariah. Uh, we had a break over Christmas and looked at Jesus' birth in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, one could say the very fulfilment of what Zechariah was pointing us toward. But now we're back in the book of Zechariah and we're up to the dizzy heights of chapter 9 of 14. <laughs> yes, it's taking us a while to look through it all. Today I have an introduction, a conclusion and six points that are five minutes each. <laughs> no, <laughs> no I don't. Uh, there are at least six things I want to highlight to us. However, I'll try to be very succinct. Now, where are we up to? Well, one could easily assume that this book of the Bible is about the big nations back then, uh, such as Assyria, Babylon and Persia. But it is also about, as seen in these verses, some of the surrounding smaller towns too, as we shall shortly see. So let's make a start looking at these 10 verses. Now, so think like others that a better break is actually after verse 10 <laughs> rather than verse 13. And the first thing that stands out for me that I would like to highlight for us occurs in verse 1, and it's this. It's a very close relationship between the Lord and his word. Verse 1 says this, The word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and will come to rest in Damascus, for the eyes of all the people and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord. Yes, there is a very, excuse me, there's a very close relationship between the Lord and his word. They are inseparable, uh, what he says goes. And his word is against the land of Hadrach and Damascus, against. Imagine the Lord saying that he is against Cairns. It's a very scary thought indeed. Now the word of the Lord is virtually a title for God himself. God is in his word. And so to be confronted by the word of the Lord is to be confronted by God himself. Yes, it is a scary thought indeed. Knowing that should make us tremble, Isaiah 66 verse 2. Every time we hear the word of God either spoken to us directly in the scriptures or when we hear it faithfully proclaimed. And when it is faithfully proclaimed, it's actually not Glenn Davies speaking or Trevor Sager speaking or Craig Water speaking or Dan White speaking. Welcome back, Dan and Lucy and Hazel and Edith. Or even Zechariah speaking. What is behind such is the Lord himself speaking. 
All of us should just be a, a vessel for what he wants and what he's already said. And he and his word are inseparable. And anyone who explains his word to others, especially in preaching it, needs to be very careful and then therefore needs to be faithful. As I said, we all need we all <laughs> need to tremble. Isaiah 66 verse 2. And here we're told that from Hadrach, verse 1, in the north, to Ekron, verse 7, in the south, no matter what the name of the town is, <laughs> and no matter who it might be, God will not let his people be overrun. And so it is a comforting word too from God himself. We're told here in verse 8, Never again will an oppressor overrun my people, for now I am keeping watch. It's a, therefore a very scary thing to mess with God's people. Take note, it is therefore a very scary thing to mess with Christians, as they are today God's people. Take note. Now the second thing I would like to highlight is this, the Lord's people do not need to fear those who oppose us. The strange thing is this, a whole lot of places are mentioned in these verses. Thank you, Glenda, for, for pronouncing them correctly. And yet none of them are what we might call today big players. Like the Lord doesn't even mention Assyria or Babylon or Persia, who either ravaged Jerusalem or held sway in Zechariah's time. Yes, they were the big players of the day, but not even mentioned here as an enemy here. It's like the Lord doesn't mention big places like Russia, China, USA. Rather, he mentions little places like Babinda, Innisfail, Tully. <laughs> and he basically says, don't fear them. They might oppose you, but I will always provide for you. Good to see you, Bill. <laughs> It makes me think of the small players of the day that opposed us at the Estefford Hall. But as I keep saying, it is my favourite word in the Bible, but uh, the Lord's people do not need to fear those who oppose them. What comforting words it would have been to God's people in the time of Zechariah. What comforting words it also is to us. But it's actually more than that. It's not that those who outrightly oppose God's people who eventually get hammered. It is any unbeliever who you might be tempted to fear or to envy. The third thing I would like to highlight is this. The Lord's people do not need to envy anyone. Uh, take, for example, places like Tyre and Sidon, verse 3. They never threatened Israel at all, military-wise. But the people of those towns are singled out. It seems that at the height of their power, they were the merchant princes of the Mediterranean, renowned for their seafaring prowess. But it seems their pride and their wealth got the better of them. I guess they might have been, like to us, nice people who just lived on the coast. 
but lived independently of God. I actually know many. I was also one of them. And I guess you know them too. I wonder how much God's people back in the time of Zechariah envied such people. And in case you're wondering, uh, Alexander the Great wiped out all these places as prophesied here in verses 1 to 8. Uh, in the early 13, uh, 300s BC, no wonder he was called Great. But even he died young. He died at the age of 32. You can read all about that prophecy in Daniel chapter 8. Anyway, moving on. But here we're told that the Lord will take away their, these towns, possessions and destroy their power on the sea and they will live happily ever after. <laughs> no. And they will be consumed by fire. Yes, the Lord's people do not need to fear or envy any unbeliever including what we think or tend to think are nice people. Their day, very sadly, is coming just like it did for Alexander the Great. Hence, do not spurn what God has done. I hope none of us uh, are living independently and therefore protecting our nest eggs. Rather, I hope we are all living dependent on him and using our wealth generously and sacrificially for his kingdom to come. If not, you know what to do. Change, repent is the word. Now the fourth uh, thing I would like to highlight is this, the relationship between the Lord and the one who will come. Now, once again, it is a very close relationship indeed. Verse 9, no doubt, is undoubtedly the best-known verse in Zechariah. And it's one of the better-known verses of the whole Old Testament. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The key issue for interpreting this verse is the identity of the king who is seen riding on a donkey amid shouts of rejoicing. We know that he is identified as Jesus uh, in the New Testament, hence the reading from Matthew 21. So his final meaning is found in the coming of Jesus. He is that king. He is therefore the Messiah. What about its meaning back here in chapter 9? What thoughts did it conjure up for the people of Zechariah's time? Well, part of the answer is found in the main point I mentioned to us all. And what was the main point? It's that of the very close relationship between the Lord and the one who will come. Yes, the one who is to come is very closely related to the Lord himself. There's an interplay here so that one minute we're talking about the one who is to come, 
the king who is to come. And the next minute, it is the Lord himself who is coming. And it is clearly seen in verse 10 in the verses to come that Craig will be speaking on, God willing, next week. So one minute it is he will, and the next minute I will. Hence why I said that right back in the Old Testament, we have such an interplay that what we now know as the Trinity (laughs) makes perfect sense of. But there's more. The book of Zechariah has already given us the key to the identity of this king. It can be none other than the one whose coming was promised in chapter 3. And also symbolised in the crowning of Joshua, the high priest, in chapter 6. It is God's servant, the branch. Now we know now that this branch is also the king who rides in on a donkey. Not on a warrior's horse. The king is therefore God's Messiah, the Christ, the one promised. And this king's rule will extend, we're told, from sea to sea to the ends of the earth. Verse 10. Wow. So we have here in Zechariah that God will send a servant who will be known as the branch, but will also be known as a king. But more than that, just as one cannot separate the Lord from his word, it seems that one might not be able to separate this one from the Lord himself. It's all amazing stuff. It's also truly amazing, well I think it is, how the Holy Scriptures, 66 individual books, written over 1,600 years by 40 different people from three different continents, Europe, Asia and Africa. And in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic and Greek, come together, come together <laughs> like this. Truly amazing. Only the Lord himself can do this sort of amazing stuff. Uh, the fifth thing I would like to highlight is this. It's the very strange way this king comes. In a word, he comes on a donkey. Have you ever ridden on a donkey? Have you ever tried, (laughs) more to the point, riding on a donkey? (laughs) One would think that a king of this stature uh, would bring his rule to the ends of the earth ride at least on a horse. (laughs) Imagine Vladimir Putin (laughs) or Xi Jinping or or Donald Trump. There's a reason why I didn't say Joe Biden. (laughs) Arriving on a donkey. (laughs) Talk to me over morning too. Uh, They're they're more likely to arrive in their own private jets. (laughs) But this king, who we now know is Jesus, will one day arrive on a donkey. And he did, hence the reading from Matthew 21. Arriving on a donkey says a lot. It at least says that his rule is not going to be achieved like one might expect. No wonder some Jews today are still waiting on a Messiah. 
a warrior-type king who will rule by physically defeating, smashing everyone else. It at least says that this king might even be humble rather than proud. In believing in this king, therefore, in following him, it also reminds us of the need to always be humble. 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6. And when one thinks about it, it would be very noticeable indeed. A king, but on a donkey. It's rather ironic that on the cross where Jesus was crucified, they put a sign saying, King. I have on my sermon notes here all these um, little special characters and um, capital letters and uh, because Ellie got to my sermon <laughs> and she started typing. <laughs> I've got all these things. It doesn't make sense. Anyway. <laughs> yes, it is a very strange way for a king to come, riding on a donkey. But riding on a donkey does say a lot. It's no wonder that he will proclaim peace. No wonder this king will bring peace with God himself. This is a lot about God. Uh, we'd all like to see world peace, wouldn't we? But it will never be achieved. Not in this world anyway. Jesus even says so in Matthew 10, 34. World peace is a furphy. But this servant... This branch, this king, will bring peace with God. The one who made the world, the one who made you and me, and the one who controls everything. Now that peace one needs. And that peace one will get when one repents and believes in this servant, this branch, this king, this messiah, this righteous one, this victorious one, Jesus is his name. We've sung all about him. Yes, Jesus, although he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, not in his own private jet, will bring victory, verse 9, to the ends of the earth, verse 10. And amazingly, people like you and me can now be part of it once we accept the very reason he came. He came to bring us peace with God. John chapter 14 verse 27. Friends, do not spurn this king. Do not reject this king. And why? Because this king's amazing conception, perfect life, awful death, glorious resurrection, and ascension until he one day returns as a judge has meant that the end of the world has begun. Do not spurn this king. Rejoice greatly and therefore live for this king. And pray, come Lord Jesus, come. Amen. Thank you all. Thanks, Bart.